Hey, all you rad dads out there. Hey, what's up, everybody? Rad Dad Brett here, bringing you another episode of the Rad Dad Show. Today, we're chatting with Charlie Angus. I don't even know where to start with this introduction. Charlie's probably best known as an NDP Member of Parliament here in Canada, representing the Timmins-James Bay riding in Ontario. In his political work, Charlie's described as bringing a grassroots, punk rock style of activism to Parliament, fighting for underrepresented and marginalized communities. But Charlie's also many other things. He's an author with his eighth book, Cobalt, coming out later this year. He's a singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the Grievous Angels, who just released their eighth album, Summer Before the Storm. He's a proud advocate and historian of his current hometown, Cobalt, Ontario, which is, of course, the inspiration for his upcoming book. But he's also a dad. Charlie has three daughters, and we talk about how he navigates the challenges of parenting and maintaining your family's privacy when you're in the public eye. He also talks about how his kids keep him on his toes and how he thinks Gen Z is really going to shake things up. And of course, we get the scoop on the new Grievous Angels album and Charlie's upcoming book. It was really great chatting with Charlie, and I could really feel the dedication he has for his family and his community throughout the whole conversation. I encourage everyone listening to go check out his music and his books and his politics if you're so inclined. Without further delay, here's MP Charlie Angus on the Rad Dads Show. Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us on the Rad Dads Show. Um, I'm going to start the way we always do, and that's by asking, who are you? <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show. I am Charlie Angus. The, my day job is the Member of Parliament for Timmins James Bay in Northern Ontario. I've been a, an elected Member of Parliament for 17 years. Wow. Uh, being a politician was the last thing on my bucket list. Um, <laughs> I had no intention when I quit school at 17 to go on the road with a band that I would end up in politics. But so my other hat is uh, I'm the lead uh, singer, the, the, the founding member of the band Grievous Angels that toured the country many times, uh, had some great shows in Edmonton over the years, have our eighth album out. Um, I'm an author. I'm just completed my eighth book. How do I do all that while being a dad and a member of parliament? Well, it's, it's about juggling lots of stuff. And it's actually also about getting incredible ideas fed to me all the time by my daughters, uh, ideas that come very much outside the realm of politics that make me think. So, um, yeah, that's, that's basically who I am. Right on. So yeah, as you know, as I sort of, you know, did always do a little bit of research heading into these interviews and kind of start reading about you, you've done a lot over the years. Uh, you've got a lot that you're juggling on your plate right now, but you're also a dad. Um, so how many kids do you have? I have three daughters. Okay. Um, yeah. My wife and I moved in together when she was, a, she was from Alberta. She was a student. I was a punk rock bass player and a dishwasher. Um, we moved in together and uh, decided we were going to set the world on fire. So we have three daughters. They're grown. Um, and uh, one lives in Ottawa. One's in Toronto. Possibly moving to the United States to do oh. a lot of really cool academic research. One is at home with us uh, with the boyfriend because they're COVID refugees right now. So, uh, But the daughters are the, still, they've always been the center of our lives, even though I'm never home, even though I'm very much out in the public all the time as either, uh, you know, the activist, the voice of the North, uh, doing history, politics, music, 
juggling all those balls, but uh, the family is, is central. Yeah. And so you, you kind of mentioned that, you know, you started out kind of as a, a punk rocker in your, your early years. And I, there was a quote on your website that I thought was kind of interesting. And so it's, it said you have a, take a grassroots punk rock style of activism to parliament. So maybe describe for me a little bit about that journey of starting out as a kind of punk rocker in your teens and how does that take you to today and and maybe how does that sort of stick with you i think um i mean i think some people have this um image of punk rock oh you have to have a mohawk and you have to have lots of studs and you have to be in a mosh pit when the punk movement began it was a lot more anarchic um it was people just deciding to take control of their own culture. We had, our culture was very much defined for us. And, you know, I was a kid in the seventies and rock and roll had become really bloated and really arrogant and very commercial and groups like the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks, the Clash, the Jam blew it all up. And so punk, I, I remember punk was art school kids punk was theater, punk was people wearing different clothes and being weird, punk was people trying things and reading Baudelaire and William Burroughs and, and trying to think things through. And punk was also very, very political because the 80s, which is when the L'Etranger, my first band was around, was a very intense political time. People tend to forget that. Um, and so to me, it was about opening my eyes, opening my eyes to different forms of music, reggae music, rockabilly, uh, you know, the clash, the band were huge influences. So I don't play punk music. I haven't played it since I left L'Etranger and formed my main band, the Grievous Angels, which is more tr traditional rock country, uh, you know, maritime music, perhaps Canadiana. But that punk attitude, I think the powerful thing about punk was DIY, do it yourself. And the other thing is to cross Canada in a van might sound really romantic. It's really freaking hard, <laughs> <laughs> particularly when you get to the West, because to get to the West, you have to get across Northern Ontario. Anyone who's ever toured in a van will tell you the endless, endless miles to get out of Ontario um, with no place to play. And then you're literally 12 hours between shows, you know, from from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg, Winnipeg to Regina, to get to Edmonton or Calgary, then the 24-hour drive through the mountains. You have to have your, sh your shit together. Um, and that's what punk rock told me, is if you're going to do it, if you're going to get up on the stage, you got to know what you're doing. And that's what I do in politics. It's DIY. And the other thing is I put my, my political staff the way I put a band together. Um, and I even said to my staff, okay, I know you guys are used to working for politicians, but you're going to have to learn a few musical terms even for how we're going to set things up because um, we're going to, we're going to do this very much DIY. We're going to draw it. It's going to be like getting in a van and touring and really making the most of it. So I, I, I don't wear the leather jackets anymore, but I, uh, I, that DIY attitude, that punk attitude of, t and the punk attitude of taking on the man, uh, to me, that's, it's still, people laugh every now and then people say, man, you're still such a punk. <laughs> it's like, thank you. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> well, it doesn't really leave you. Right. I, I kind no. of identify with that as well. You know, as you 
grow up, things sort of change and your perspectives change. You get, you know, educated and you're, you know, the, the way you move through your life is a little bit different, but it's that, that ethos or that, um, that kind of perspective that you carry with you. So, um, so let me ask you this. So as a parent, um, would you consider yourself a rad dad? Um, I, I, I don't know. I certainly have rad daughters. Um, my daughters will tell you that they never heard a, one of those um, Sharon Lois and Brahms child records growing up. Um, <laughs> as little kids, they, they learned uh, Bank Robber by The Clash. Um, I sang Irish and Scottish rebel songs to them because that's what I grew up on. So my kids yeah. laughed that they were, you know, they, they grew up on their little children's songs or songs about blowing up British army trucks. Uh, <laughs> so Not the uh, typical, uh, the wheels on the bus go yeah. round and round kind of thing. Yeah, we were that's um, and um, you know, my daughters, uh, I was introducing them to music at a young age and then they started introducing me to, to music as they came into stuff. So uh, rad dad. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. So how, how do you define, uh, how would you define a rad dad if I flip the question a little bit on you? <laughs> um, like what, what are the traits of a rad dad? I think a rad dad is into where his kids are at um, and is not trying to be cooler than his kids. A rad dad is willing to learn. Uh, I've been smacked down so many times uh, by my daughters over the years in arguments like, dad, stop it. Dad, no, we're not going there. Come on, dad, get with the times. They challenge you. And to be open to what they're learning, like I, I find as I, I say to a lot of dads, you know, when they're really excited about the, the baby and they're like, oh, yeah, then the teen years are going to come and it's going to be really hard. And I say, stop that. The teen years were the were amazing. I said every year gets better. You know, you have hard times and good times all the time, just like walking a baby all night. Uh, but to me, every year gets better if you're open. And being a rad dad is being willing to, to be young enough to be excited by things uh, and to be mature enough to know that you're not the one who necessarily has to step in and be the cool one. Let them do their thing. So that's, to me, that's a rad dad. Yeah, you're kind of describing like, engaging with your kids right that yeah there's a certain element of that i don't know if you heard jason collette's song my daddy was a rock and roller uh, i don't know that song I, no. I love that song it was a beautiful song and i i knew jason collette's dad who was just such a hilarious and wild wild character when we were mm -hmm. young um and i thought jason wrote a really beautiful song about his dad it's uh and as we get older we learn a lot more about our parents that we thought were really on that they were really on cool before and they just didn't get it. You, you, you start to understand and just put it all into perspective a little more. Right. So on that note, like, are you, what was your relationship like with your dad? Um, we came from a pretty, well, we, we had a family that yelled and argued all the time, but we're very tight knit. Um, my parents, uh, I think were in the shadows of my grandparents. Uh, we were, they were Cape Breton miners. Um, my Scottish grandmother on my father's side was a very militant political working class woman from Dundee. Uh, so the grandparents were a big influence. Um, my dad, my dad had to quit school at 16 to go get a job because he was a minor son. Um, and he was brilliant in mathematics, something I can't do at all. And when he was almost 40, he had scored enough money to go back to school and he became uh, a professor of economics. I never saw my dad 
ever watch a baseball game. My dad never watched a hockey game. I don't think my dad did any stitch of work ever around the house. He was a really brilliant man. But the great thing about my dad was he was an incredible dancer. Uh, oh, interesting. My dad was a legendary dancer in Timmins, uh, the town we were from. Wow. Uh, you know, the old jitterbug Lindy Hop stuff. And yeah. him and my mom were beautiful dancers. And on Friday nights, uh, they would put the music on. My dad was really funny. He loved a big party. He loved lots of people. Uh, every stray in the neighborhood, any kid that we knew, any kid who had been kicked out of their home for being back in the days when being a queer kid got kicked out, they could come to our house and stay over. And uh, so it was it was a loud house. It was a very uh, my daughter, my sisters argued a lot with my dad. But he was very funny, but him and my mom were the most beautiful dancers. <laughs> and that was the thing they did. They never watched sports. They never played, you know, they never did dad things at all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he was, a, he, was his, he was his own person. So music was obviously a big part of growing up as well. Uh, music was a huge part. Uh, again, the Cape Breton side of my family, they were all expats. Timmins back in the day was the Fort Mac of Canada. That's where right. you went to work, right? People from the Maritimes and that went to Timmins and there were, you know, they had neighborhoods were all multi-ethnic. So um, there were, there was lots of music, uh, singing. If you knew, if you could sing as a kid, you could stay up uh, uh -huh. and you ran out of songs, you got sent to bed. And those songs made a huge impression on my understanding of the world and such beautiful the celtic music um ryan groups canadian groups like ryan's fancy and john allen cameron but the clancy brothers the old scottish songs i learned them all so we had big parties and then my father really made sure that we kept that going after my grandparents died we had we, when we get together we'd sing my mom loved country music like old old country music hank williams lefty frizzell merle haggard that was a big influence. My dad loved jazz. Um, and then I discovered the clash. So I, I listened to all those forms of music and, and, and whatever is being brought in to my life from my, 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 my daughters as well. So it's, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so did you learn how to play You're obviously a guitar player? I see, I think I see a banjo and a mandolin behind you yeah. there. So you play a few stringed instruments. Did you learn that sort of at home as well? Um, well, if you could, see, my sister learned the guitar to play um, for the family gatherings. Uh, I learned to play guitar because I figured it was a ticket out of school. Um, I learned to, I decided, uh, Andrew Cash, uh, who was a member of parliament and quite a well-known Canadian musician, him and I met when we were 14 and decided we would learn to play guitar. Uh, we had quit school when we were 17 or 18 and go on the road. And we literally did that. We, we learned guitar and uh, formed a band. And uh, the first punk band was called L'Etranger. And so it was all about, to me, learning a guitar was all about getting up on stage. Like I wasn't doing it to play in the basement. I was going to get up on stage one way or the other. I was going to get a band. I was going to perform. And uh, even, yeah, that's what I did. That was the plan. That's what we did. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because obviously you kind of had that desire to get up there and share a message, right? That's kind of what punk rock is about is, you know, usually there's a message you're trying to share. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of continued on through your life as well. Um, you're, you're still doing that kind of representing the people, right? And, and giving a voice to the people. Yeah. And um, I, I think there was a couple of interesting sort of way things came together in my life. Our family were Scottish and one and and 
none of them had ever had gone to school. My grandparents, they, they, were, they were working people, but they were really articulate. They knew their history. As a kid, you, they made it very clear, if you were going to have an opinion, you better know what you were talking about and you better say it properly. But if you did have an opinion and you knew what you were talking about, you didn't have to kiss anyone's ring. Um, and to me, that was a, that's a very Scottish thing, but it's kind of a punk rock thing too, of yeah, like, yeah. you didn't have to bow down to the record or exec or you didn't have to kiss someone's ring because they had a suit. Um, and so in my politics, I really carry that um, sense of when I speak uh, in the house, I need to know what I'm talking about. I always think of my grandparents and, and, and the people I represent who don't have a voice. Um, I often say that I represent people who've been written off the political map of the nation and they expect me to speak properly for them. They expect me to be on fire and they expect me to take on the man, but they expect me to do it to make them proud as you know a Northern working class region. So I carry that thing that I learned growing up and the punk rock thing was definitely is like, we're here to, we're here to call out what's not right and fix it and, and put something better in place. So politics, think in the end became it wasn't on my bucket list to do but it I think now it seems very natural yeah it, that's so interesting because I think um you know that's a probably um an idea that's a bit controversial amongst uh you know punk rockers right there's kind of that um anarchy type of you kind of talked about this before but you know so, some people kind of feel that you should have nothing to do with the government and you know screw the government but you've kind of flipped that on its head that, well, no, I, I can kind of bring about some positive change here. Well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, everybody, uh, people, I always say I'm an, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist and that I, I don't really, uh, meetings and I still don't have a great <laughs> time with, but I've, I've learned that parliament, it's not the, the best system on the planet, but it seems to be better than the others we've got out there right now. But, it gives you an, a voice. It gives you an, uh, an ability. Uh, the rules of parliament are important because they protect the rights of someone like me who represents a region in the north uh, to, to, to call out the government, to, to, to speak up on issues of injustice. And it's, uh, you know, when I was running initially, a lot of my friends in the music scene thought it was hilarious that I was running. They thought it was a stunt. I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm running to win. And they said, well, what are you going to do if you win? I said, I'm going to put a team together and we're gonna kick ass and we're not going to stop. And that's what we've done. And that's what I'm still doing all these years later. It's like, I didn't go there to sit in some big comfy chair and pat myself on the back. Like we gotta get shit done. So yeah. um, that's that's what I do. And and I have fun doing it. And I, and I really like, to me again, it's like having a band, uh, you know, a, a real band isn't one or two or three great guitar players who do their thing. It's about people listening to each other, playing together, and really just loving what you get out of it. So, and I've learned that with my music over the years. I've realized, you know, we had record deals, we were on the radio, we've had Juno nominations. Um, but, you know, the difference between a professional musician and a large pizza is that a large pizza will feed a family of four. Uh, so why do you still do music? You do it because you love the craft and you love the people you're playing with. And, mm -hmm. and I... To me, to do politics, I have to like the people I, I'm with. I have to want to feel that we're in that, it's that thing. We're in the band, we're in the van, we're going to the gig, we're going to take on whatever comes. And if there's only four people at that show, we're going to give them the best show of their lives. And that to me was the, the you know, the lesson I learned. Uh, if you're going to travel and tour, then there's good 
there's going to be great gigs and crappy gigs, but you treat them all with full heart. And that's, I do that with my political life as well. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So where, where were you in your sort of career and your, your journey when you first had a child? Um, I was, um, my wife and I were actually running a house for the homeless in downtown Toronto. So guys coming out of prison, um, a lot of alcoholics and people, refugees, that's a whole other side story of my life. But we were in our early twenties when my oldest daughter was born. Um, and then my second daughter was born while we were still living with the homeless, but we were on the verge of moving back to Northern Ontario to the little town of Cobalt, just when all the mines shut down. So we, <laughs> interesting. yeah. Uh, so we moved to this beaten up, broken down old house that I was trying to fix myself. The kids were, you know, uh, you know, crawling around while well, there were nails on the floor and loose <laughs> sockets and they, 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 they grew up fine. And then, uh, yeah. So, and then my third daughter was born. I think, um, I was, uh, I was involved in a huge environmental battle to stop a massive garbage dump. And <laughs> There were blockades and my, my third daughter was a little child on that. And then I got elected. So my daughters have seen it all. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. So did you have any fears about becoming a dad? Um, no, I thought it was going to be amazing. I never doubted for a second that it was going to be amazing. And, and it was so. Uh, that was always yeah. kind of part of the plan. Well, yeah, you know, you have to negotiate to get mm -hmm. to, with whoever the one you're with. But uh, yeah, it was those three daughters, having children was amazing. And, and I, I think it's really important. I'm going to just say is that people in politics really put their family as part of the the package, you know, you see members of parliament with the, the pictures, the perfect photo of the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine if you want to do that. But um, my, my, we, there's never been a political photo of my family. Um, my daughters and my wife are not part of my political life. And they're very clear about their limits. Um, their, their right to privacy in our home is our home. It's, I do my politics. I do my politics almost 24 seven, but within the realm of the home, and the family, they get to decide whether they want to participate or not. And I think right. that's really important, especially in the kind of toxic realm we're in. There's mm -hmm. a real growing toxicity of politics. And and my daughters are really wise on this. And they, they said to me recently, you know, Dad, um, no offense, but don't tag us in Facebook photos anymore. Things are just too weird out there. And I said, hey, fair play. So, um, having deciding those terms uh, that yeah. gives your child their their right uh, is important for for someone in the public eye i mean that's that's really difficult right is figuring out what that boundary is so how, how do you how do you navigate that because it must be a challenge on an almost daily basis for you well i the, the challenge for me is that i'm so inspired by what my daughters are doing way more than even so what I'm, I want to promote them. I want to talk about it and that. Mm -hmm. And I realize sometimes, okay, maybe uh, that's drawing too much attention. And, and so that's, what's negotiated um, in Ottawa. It's, it's kind of funny. Like um, I never go to these galas. I don't, the, the, the schmooze fests and that I got no time for it. To me, I'm there to represent my people, but 
I have two daughters who sometimes have fun with me and we, they say, come on, dad, find a thing that we can go crash. And so we go crash <laughs> an event together. And it's actually, we have a blast because we're sort of going there to have fun, not to sort of yeah. do politics and be on, on display. And, uh, and my oldest daughter is a beautiful dancer like my dad was. So sometimes we'll show up at an event and we'll get out and just really tear the floor up, you know, doing cool. doing a really wild jive. And people are like, what? Where did you learn to do that? And it's like, ah, this is what we do. And so, but it's it's on their terms. If they want to go and do something and participate, then we do it. And if not, then, you know, that's their world. And I have my political realm. And, and people are really good in the riding. I think people initially expected that, you know, my wife and my children were going to be part of it. And then I said, well, they didn't run. Um, they're not, you know, they're not on the ballot. They, they live their lives and people, people get that. And, and the other great thing in the North is people know you, who you are. They know where you live. They, they know you, they know your family. So they're all very cool about those boundaries that have to be put in place. Right. Oh, that's really, really a, a neat, um, I guess as someone looking in from the outside, there, there's lots of politicians. I think that, like you said, like to have the family on the, you know, the photo or the Christmas card or whatever. And it, it's all about kind of having the perfect family and the perfect situation. And, and um, yeah, it's kind of a different approach that you've taken to that. And I think that's really, really neat, especially in this day and age where, yeah, privacy is such a, you know, it's a, almost a commodity that's becoming more and more rare. I think it is. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm just so glad my mom didn't have a uh, Twitter when I was young. <laughs> you know, there's not a million pictures of me out there. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's something to consider. We live entirely in the public. Um, and I think there's also for p- political people, it can be exploitive. You're trying to show that you have the perfect family. Well, nobody's family's perfect. We're all, you know, um, you know, we're all a little bent and broken and rough around the edges. And um, so that's our rule. And it's my, my, I'm the the guy who does the politics. I'm the guy who goes out and gets up on stage. My daughters do their thing. My wife does her thing. Uh, And everyone who knows us knows how it all works together. But uh, we don't, we've never, ever had a family Christmas photo that we've, we've done a few fun photos out in the backyard that people seem to really like, because we basically wear our lumberjack jackets and have a can right. of beer in our hands. And, you know, we're just being our Northern hose ourselves. To yeah, it's people's. a real person. It's a real person. Yeah yeah. 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 Interesting. So there's that authenticity, right? Which I think, yeah. you know, in some ways relates back to that punk rock kind of ethos, right? So, yeah. um, what are the most rewarding aspects of, of fatherhood for you? Um, I think what was really, again, what was really profound was um, having my eyes opened by them. By seeing, like, you know, I remember before my children were born, uh, I was working in a restaurant and everybody was talking about what kind of child they would have. And, you know, my child is going to learn um, the violin and my child is going to study mathematics. And they were all like deciding what their children were going to be. These sort of made to order children. Yeah. And I said, I'd like my child to be kind. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, of course, of course, all our children are going to be kind. Well, no, not necessarily 
kindness and mercy are things that you you nurture. And as soon as your child's born, you realize you can decide whatever the hell you want that that child should be, but that child is who they are. Your job is to find out who they are and help them become who they are. But, you know, all, all your plans go out the window the second that you see that right. child's eyes. And that's, that's, that's the mystery. Who is that person? Um, who should they become? Um, and if you try and make them who you think they should become, you're, you're, you're stunting yourself, you're stunting them and you're damaging a relationship. So profound is, wow, this person is here and this person is going to change everything I've known about the world. So I'm here to find out who this person is and go along with them and make, make it happen. Right. So, you know, you, the, what you sort of describe is, giving them a bit of a clean slate um, to kind of become the person they want to become. Obviously you're going to nurture certain things in, in your child that you think are important. Um, yeah. How, how has being a dad changed you? Um, I mean, it's been so much a part of my life that it's, it's hard to, to see. Um, there is certainly, there's a level of, panic that you feel as a dad that you don't feel in any other thing in your life if something mm -hmm. goes wrong for your child uh, that sense of just sheer blind fear and panic if something is not right uh, if they get you know if there's an illness uh, if there's like something any you know when you can't suddenly yeah. fix something yeah. um, I try to think of that when I deal with constituents who are dealing with crisis with their young people that sense of what it is um, that panic so being being more open to that um, I think I think children keep you young uh, but not in a way of you still trying to be cool they they make you like my youngest daughter's really she's sort of the upper end of Gen Z and they're a radical bunch, this young group, and they are, they're, they're pushed, they're kicking at the boundaries. And, uh, I've been challenged a thousand times, but it's like, I'm kind of like, wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm putting my money on Gen Z. I think they're going to do a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, and so being young, but not trying to be young, seeing, being enthused because they're enthused. You know, that's, that is really important. Not being, not being foolishly enthusiastic. Sometimes, you know, things are going to be problematic. Sometimes they're going to have to discover it themselves, but, uh, but they got to keep you from becoming cynical and set in your ways and lazy about the world. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, it's an interesting thing as you kind of get older, it's hard to realize too that sometimes you are a little bit out of touch. And so it's <laughs> kind of good for your kids to kind of um, re-anchor you a little bit in reality sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a line uh, on a song on the new album. Uh, I There's a line that says, there's a mighty wind to howl and, and it's blowing sticks and stones. It's the rage against the children that festers in rich men's bones. And I wrote that uh, from seeing those big rallies of the guys in their trucks with their honking horns when Greta Thunberg mm. was speaking. Uh, and my daughter was like, dad, what's wrong with these men? She's a kid. 
why are they so freaked out? And I looked at it, I was like, yeah, these are dads. These are uncles, mm-hmm. you know, like being freaked out by a teenager. Uh, and I, I thought, what is it like that we're so young? The young generation is there to challenge us. They're mm-hmm. there to, sometimes to, to, to make us feel very uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. And, you know, and that's we were there to do thing either, right? It's not a new thing. It's, it's like, yeah. so, so when my daughter throws out the okay boomer stuff, like I actually <laughs> think it's hilarious. I know these people are really, you know, people are blaming millennials and blaming young yeah. people. And then the young people are blaming boomers. It's like, man, welcome to life. It's always been this way. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just different words for the same thing, right? This, yeah. Just this different kind of words. discussion has been going on for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you, and and we'll talk a little bit more about some of your projects you've got going on right now, but you're a busy guy. I mean, not only as a politician and, um, you know, some of these other things you have going on, um, but, you know, you're writing a book, you've got an album that's just come out. Um, how do you, and maybe how historically, it might, might not be as difficult these days, but uh, how historically have you managed kind of being away from the family? You've probably got lots of commitments away. It's a big thing, um, you know, especially when your children are very young. Um, I think on um, our first big album that we had on Stony Plain Records out of Edmonton. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a song and it's, uh, I, the line is, my little girl spoke her first words today and I found out from a payphone on the Capascasing Highway. <laughs> um, you know, like being away, especially when they're young, is big because you come back and they've changed dramatically. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think partly cause I was on the road with the band a lot that uh, my kids knew I'd be, I'd be in and out. Um, politics is much harder. And um, they talk about politics being fa- making politics family friendly. And every time I, there's a new parliament, there's a big push to make parliament family friendly. And uh, I'm the cynic. I say, there's nothing family friendly about the political life. Get over it. Like it's, we, we try, we say we're going to fix it, but it is not family friendly. And so what you're asking is your family to take an enormous, um, they, they carry an enormous burden. I've said to people over the years, I've been to everybody's, every kid's graduation in my riding, except my own kids, you know? Um, Interesting. Like I'm never home. I'm always, but I'm going to other kids' graduations, you know, like to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to recognize that that's, that's an issue and it, it changes the dynamics of a family. Uh, if you're not, if you come in on a Friday night and you're gone on Sunday, um, you're not the same, you don't have, you don't have the same place. Like they've, they've worked out their dynamics and uh, being sensitive to that's important because, you know, it's not just politics. I mean, there's people I know, like, you know, people around here whose dads are gone two weeks in, two weeks out. I've written songs about those families, right. about the pressures, you know, the fly-in camps. I mean, people from here, they fly to Fort St. John, they fly to Fort Mac. Um, they're gone. They come yeah. home. Uh, they're burnt out. Um, it's really hard. And, and I know because I know a lot of working class families around here. It's really hard to keep a family dynamic going when, when especially when the dad comes home. And it's burnt out, you know, you've burnt out from working 12 hour shifts and like the kids are like, come on, dad, let's go out and do something. So how do you, how do you, you know, it's families have to be gentle with each other sometimes. So is it it, like for you guys, was it just sort of everybody coming to terms with that? Um, 
or were there certain, you know, strategies that you used to kind of, you know, deal with some of that time away? And um, Yeah, I think, um, well, my wife has a rule, which is that, like, I, when I drive home, because I can drive to, to my house from Parliament, it's, it's about 500 kilometers to the south, south end of where I live the writing. Um, my wife said, if you're talking on the phone, sit in the car and keep talking. If you talk on the phone for three hours in the car, that's fine. But don't cross the threshold talking on the phone doing politics. When you come in, we begin anew. And that's, that was a really important thing. I, I've talked to political people about like, try to find a day. And it's the family day. That's really hard. Uh, people, your time will get eaten up and your time will get eaten up by a lot of junk too. So trying to negotiate. I was lucky that my two older daughters were a little old. They were in their teens uh, when I got elected, but my youngest was very young. Um, so, you know, I was away for, a, I didn't know most of her friends growing up. Uh, whereas my older daughters, I was involved at the school, through the church, through the youth group. You know, I knew all the, the kids that they knew was a real different relationship for my, because there's, a, there's a, quite an age gap between the oldest and the youngest. And so growing up, we were really, really, really active in all parts of their life. And then suddenly I'm coming in. And so I don't, like when my younger daughter talks about who she went to school with and that, I'm like, hmm, who do I, do I know? I don't. So again, these are things you have to negotiate and some, and mm -hmm. that's life. Sometimes you can be there. And so you try and, and other times you're not, and you just try and make, make those moments special when you are home, but to be aware that, yeah, you're cranky and you're tired because you had a bad week, but you're in their place. Now you're in their yeah. home. You gotta, you gotta pick up your game and I'm not always great at it, but you gotta remember that to, you have to pick it up. Those boundaries, I think, you know, especially the, at the moment in time we're talking right now, the boundaries between work and home life for a lot of people are very blurry, right? Yeah. A lot of people working from I, home and th things like that. So that, that's almost a, you know, a really timely <laughs> thing to talk about. Oh, right I, now. I think so. I think I, it's been amazing. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the discussions on COVID, I've been involved in so many Zoom calls with uh, labor activists about worker rights and, um, you know, how to get people through with, with the CERB and, and people, the uncertainty of the workplace. And then they'll just say, uh, I'm sorry, I gotta, I'm, I'm, my, my, I'm trying to do homeschooling and my child is sick. And then they just say, you know, I'm so burnt out. Um, like that pressure of family's life at home in COVID, I think is, it is an enormous, enormous burden. And it's also, you know, when you're young, you don't get that year back in your life ever. You know, the, the, the year from seven to eight, from eight to nine, nine to yeah. 10, all the way up. These are, these are the defining years of your life to be at home without your friends, without your school. Mm -hmm. Like there's only so much a parent can do. And that's, I think that stress. I'm, I don't have that stress right now because my daughters are older, but they have other stresses, economic and stuff, but man, uh, so there's a lot of rad dads and rad moms who are carrying a lot of heavy emotional weight right now. For sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if you had told me a year ago, you know, I'd be working from home and my kids would be upstairs while I'm, you know, working. Like I just would have never thought yeah. that was a possibility. Yeah. And there's so many people that 
it's just made things so difficult for. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to give you a chance to chat about, because I feel like, you know, we talked about the Grievous Angels. That's kind of primarily, I think, you know, one of the things I'd love to talk to you about today. Tell me a little bit about the history of that band and maybe, you know, how did we get up to releasing your eighth album, which which just came out? Well, um, you know, I'd left the punk band L'Etranger. Uh, we had three records out um, and I, my wife and I started working with the homeless in downtown Toronto. Um, and the idea of the angels was literally just a way to blow off steam. Um, our fiddler, Peter Gillard had shown up at our door from Edmonton, um, because he knew my wife, they'd gone to school and Peter was a really great young fiddler. And we had a young singer then Michelle. Um, and we decided let's just go and busk on the street. Let's not go with amps. Let's not need drums. Let's just we'll go busk and have fun and we'll and again I wanted to explore a lot of those kind of songs I grew up with so the angels started busking and then uh, we added the bass Tim on bass who's you know been the founding member since and a drummer and then we started playing the punk rock bars but we weren't playing punk rock we were we had accordions and fiddles and stand-up bass and uh, and it was a lark that was what it was and then I started to write for the band and then we thought imagine if we could see Canada and it happened really quickly for the grievous angels, our rise to fame and our decline in a sense, like we, um, we were playing the big festivals out West, uh, Regina, Edmonton, Calgary, Jasper, Canmore. We were suddenly playing festivals. And what I loved about the angels was that it gave us an opportunity to see Canada. And to me, Canada is, is an adventure. Mm -hmm. I never lost that sense of adventure to me that I, that's probably why people say, why do you write songs about so many Canadian places? It's like, well, because writing a song about Saskatchewan is different than writing a song about British Columbia or Toronto. Mm -hmm. They're different places. And so different things in my mind happen in these different places. So the angels uh, toured many years, uh, a couple Juno nominations. Um, I got increasingly tied up in politics so it's it slowed us down a lot but it really started out as we just thought let's just have fun let's say get a fun band and let's see Canada and yeah that's that was that was the reason interesting and and so you've just released your eighth album um what's sort of going on around the release of that album this is a tough time um, you know, in, in the industry, you know, if I put it that way to, to put out new music, cause you know, touring and that kind of stuff is not something you can really do. What are, what are you guys doing around the album? Well, um, we've released a few videos. Um, we're just, for me right now, just anyone hearing the record makes me happy. Um, the album is called summer before the storm and it's really People are saying, wow, were you, were you uh, looking into the crystal ball about the storm that was coming? It was written on the eve of COVID. And there is a lot of issues, I think, that we're addressing, the dissonance, the, the sense of foreboding, uh, people not sure where they're going. Um, I think there were a lot of threads running through our society, uh, the conspiracy theory stuff, the mm -hmm. disinformation, people not knowing what the future was going to hold that was that was around us just prior to COVID hitting and then COVID hit 
So the album, the songs, I think, are very prescient for the time. Uh, and we weren't able to do anything. We, we had, I had vocal tracks I wanted to finish. We were going to get together and mix it. And so we had to do it all long distance. Mm -hmm. And as anyone listening to this will know, we had to do it on COVID time, which man, everything seems to go really slow. Like it takes suddenly things that would have just gotten done. It just seemed to take, it took most of the year. Uh, of the COVID crisis to get the album mixed. But I think that was cool. I, I began to think, okay, time, time is, is a construct. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what COVID's taught me. So we, we spent time listening and re-listening. And I, I think the mixing and the placing of the voices and the instruments on the album is the best placings we've had. I think that's partly a result of the time and stretch that COVID took. And then the launch, we finished, the album was ready for release in October. And we decided, well, October, then there's November, then we're into Christmas. We'll release it in January um, in the down month. And that was funny too, because before we would have thought, okay, the album's ready. It's got to go out. It's like, well, is anybody out there in the COVID world going to feel a difference between late October, November, and January? I don't think so. Time is, time is the construct that we are we're, we're living in this ether so right. so it was really the album was really built in through that whole covid crisis so hopefully we're calling it the soundtrack uh to get us through this time maybe it's all around how that album came together yeah that's really cool and so have you sort of you mentioned you've got a a new book that's about to come out so maybe tell us a little bit about that are you kind of sh shifting gears to thinking about that a little bit more um yeah this book is named after the town I'm from, Cobalt. It's called Cobalt. Uh, so people know of Cobalt as the, uh, is a metal. And Cobalt is the miracle metal these days. If you are going to talk on Zoom, you need Cobalt. If we're gonna have a renewable economy, you need Cobalt. Uh, if you're gonna have cell phones, you need Cobalt, but it's a very elusive mineral. Mm. Um, and it's also has a really bad, bad history, particularly right now with it being exploited in the Congo and massive human rights violations. So the book is set uh, with this desperate search for this renewable economy to find this metal. And I live in a town called Cobalt, but anybody who's seen Cobalt knows that something big happened here, something unlike anything else in Ontario. Uh, this was a it's been called the last of the wild west gold rush towns, even though it's Northern Ontario, this town was much more like cripple Creek, um, Butte, Montana, the gold fields out of Nevada. This was a wild, wild place, but it's been written about as a classically Canadian happy story of, you know, nothing bad happened here. We were all happy Canadians. And it's like, that's all BS. Like this was a really wild, uh, like the frontier in Canada was a lot more violent, a lot more dissonant, uh, a lot more racialized than the sort of the white settler stories. So I'm trying to deconstruct what happened here um, because not only was it a wild history, I mean, we had um, the Montreal Canadians played their first game here. Um, Interesting. Had, yeah, because they were created out of cobalt money. Uh, we had a massive streetcar system. We had seven live theaters. We had what happened in cobalt was being recorded in newspapers around the world 
but it was about a fight. What I'm writing about is that what happened here turned Ontario from a sleepy backwater. Toronto was a nowhere town. You can't tell people in Toronto that they get very touchy about that, but <laughs> cobalt money transformed Toronto and it transformed Toronto into the world leading center for resource exploitation and development. Uh, and part of it was all the crooked financing that went on here, sure. but Canada, you know, Alberta is a bit different because Alberta, Alberta, the discussion is always about resources. It's, it's Alberta's identity. It's all, it's always there, right? Front and center. But the rest of Canada doesn't talk about resource exploitation and Toronto is the mining capital of the world. Why is that? Because all across Northern Ontario and Northern Canada are these little mining deposits that were exploited. Towns lived, they died, people moved on, holes were left in the ground, but we never talked about how we got where we got. And we never talk about, was there another way to imagine that wealth? And it brings us back to Cobalt. Cobalt was a very, very radical place. There were huge, uh, labor struggles, but it was also a vision. There was a time when they were actually talking about basically nationalizing, making the mines public. And there could have been an up, and there were actually a couple provincially run mines, but they were they happened to be in the wrong spot, so they didn't succeed. But how we imagine wealth, how we talk about it in Canada, and also it's a book I think that's going to really challenge that sort of happy story of you know the canadian frontier which basically tells it was boring it wasn't mm-hmm. boring it was very very wild it was very dark so um it is this is also a book that's being written not as a local history but how does cobalt play into a much broader north american and actually a story of the americas about even what's going on today with canadian mining companies all over the world and conflict and, and issues and the identities of resource communities it's um it, it brings it all back to this little place called cobalt oh that's so interesting that yeah. you know you've got this sort of smallish northern town um that has this deep intense history um that really impacts um people all across the country and, and beyond uh yeah i'm really looking forward to getting a chance to read it sounds really yeah it's, cool. it's been fun it's it's sort of my obsession and uh and I have one of my daughters uh, has done some really very, very provocative research on elements. And uh, so for the longest time, this is what we sat and talked around the dinner table till my daughters are sick of it. They want me to stop talking about this. <laughs> let's talk about something else, dad. So, uh, but they, they've opened, you know, and my wife is an amazing researcher. So, uh, so this is a bit of a family affair almost. Yeah, this is a, the, the history here is really, really wild. So we're always finding pieces and, and the cultural pieces, the historical, like trying to sort of fit together what the hell happened here. Because, and I, you know, anybody who ever comes through here as a tourist, you know, that's the look on their face. They were like, what happened here? This was like these winding crooked little streets and like scarred hills and giant holes in the ground. And uh, it's, Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating place. So it's, I've been wanting to write this book for a long, long time and I've been working on it for too long, but it will be coming out in January of next year. So, okay, cool. 
Well, where can where can people kind of keep up with what you're doing um, online? Where can they find out about Grievous Angels and maybe stay up to date with what's happening with the book? Well, um, the Grievous Angels, the, the album, all the, the eight the eight albums are now available on our Bandcamp site, which is really cool. So people can download the new album uh, on Bandcamp, and okay. it will be out on um, vinyl soon enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I do most of my work on Facebook and YouTube. Um, everything I do in Parliament's on YouTube. Uh, everything the band does, we're, we're putting out videos. Um, so I'm easy enough to find. Just Google Charlie Angus, you'll find me. It's, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm never quiet, that's for sure. That sounds good. We'll put some links in, in the episode when we release it um, so we can take people right there. But uh, Charlie, I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been really great chatting with you, getting to hear some of your stories. I think we've only just kind of scratched the tip of the surface. Um, you know, well, it's, yeah, you, you... It's, uh, it's a great thing that you're doing. And I think we, we got to inspire dads to realize that being a dad is really profound. And, and uh, I'll give you one last piece of advice that um, I used to give people after our first daughter was born, I said, you know, all this stuff about co-parenting, eh. <laughs> it's not really like that. To be a good dad when you, the baby's young, fetch and duck. If you know how to fetch and get things and stay out of the way, uh, you're going to be really, you're going to be okay. But don't like when the baby's being born, uh, the baby's young and the baby's crying. Your opinion doesn't really matter all that much. It's what the mother needs. You do that. Everything is so fetch and duck. Be a good dad. Yeah, good advice for for new dads or for new dads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 that's great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, that was Charlie Angus on the Rad Dads Show. Thanks so much, Charlie, for joining us. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you drop us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for more Rad Dads content, find us wherever you get your podcasts, or give us a follow on social media. On Instagram, you can find us at at rad underscore dads underscore show. And on Facebook and Twitter at at rad dads show. And you can also look us up on YouTube for some video interviews as well, including this one. Lastly, Rad Dads is first and foremost a community organization aimed at positive parenting. And you can check out what we do over at raddadsyeg.com. That's raddadsyeg.com. Thanks for tuning in. In the meantime and in between time, stay rad.